Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, World on a String, the Bhagavad Gita. Everyone should read two couplets of Gita every day. It is a scripture of 700 couplets, and it can be finished in a year. Read it again, and continue this till the end. After reading it three to four times, you will discover a path to lead a life the way I discovered. These are the words of the BJP Minister for External Affairs, Sushma Swaraj, who proposed having the Bhagavad Gita declared India's national book. It was not an entirely innocuous suggestion, Officially enshrining this Hindu classic would send a none-too-subtle message to non-Hindus in India. But you don't have to be a Hindu nationalist to admire the Gita. Mahatma Gandhi memorized parts of the work and took from it inspiration for his campaign of non-violent resistance. Aldous Huxley sought in it a source for what he termed a perennial philosophy, and the early American writers Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson both admired it greatly. At the other end of the spectrum, Nazi-era Indologists in Germany found in the Gita evidence of a pure monotheism untainted by supposedly Semitic ideas. Looking back on the same troubled period of the 20th century, Robert Oppenheimer even quoted its line, Now I am become death the destroyer of worlds, with regard to his work on the atomic bomb. When it comes to furnishing a sentiment for any occasion, no greeting card company can compete with the Gita. This widespread feeling that the Bhagavad Gita is a text for all time and all people is rather surprising, given how few of us have ever had to decide whether to unleash devastating war against several dozen siblings. That is the difficult choice facing the hero Arjuna at this stage of the Mahabharata. As the action opens in the section known as the Bhagavad Gita, we are on the brink of a final battle between the Pandavas and Kauravas. Or, perhaps we should say, this is where the inaction opens. Arjuna, the greatest warrior among the Pandavas, brings both his chariot and the narrative of the whole epic to a grinding halt because he is beset by doubt. His dilemma fits into a pattern we discussed in the last episode, a conflict rooted in conflicting demands of Dharma. On the one hand, Arjuna is an outstanding example of a kshatriya, or elite warrior, He is a prince and a son of the god Indra, a fabled archer whose bow boasts its own name, the sort of guy whose birth was celebrated not with cigars and cuddly toys, but instead with the prediction, Through the might of his arm, the fire god will be fully sated with the fat of all the creatures in the Kandava forest. On the other hand, Arjuna is reluctant to kill his own family members. He feels the pull of two responsibilities, to the law of the warrior, or Kshatriya Dharma, and the law of kinship, or kula dharma. What is he to do? Perhaps nothing. Arjuna proclaims that before killing his own kinsmen, he would be better off giving up the life of a warrior entirely and becoming a renouncer. The same temptation was voiced by his older brother Yudhisthira, as we saw last time. Arjuna's problem is a distinctively philosophical one. It is not that he knows the right thing to do and lacks strength or courage to do it, but that he is genuinely puzzled about his duty, his dharma. Fortunately, Arjuna has in a resource that is unavailable to your average moral philosopher, 
God is, quite literally, his co-pilot. It turns out that his charioteer Krishna is an incarnation of the highest of all divinities, the creator of the entire universe and the speaker of most of what is to follow. Hence the title Bhagavad Gita, which means Song of the Lord. Krishna sets out a detailed argument intended to inspire Arjuna to follow his true path, his Svadharma, that is, the Dharma that is uniquely appropriate to him. It is even better to carry out one's own path badly than another's path well, and he was born for this occasion. As Bimal Matilal puts it, the entire Bharata war was for Arjuna. It was his game, and he should play. So, is the Bhagavad Gita then just a plot device, intended to push the narrative forward after giving Arjuna a chance to air his moral scruples? Hardly. The authors of the Gita take this opportunity to explore the deeper question of why any of us should ever undertake any action at all. We say authors and not author advisedly. Scholars believe that the Gita, like the whole of the Mahabharata, was composed by numerous authors who had varying agendas. While these authors do not forget the dramatic context of Arjuna's choice, they situate that choice within what seem to be several different philosophical and religious contexts. The not displeasing result is that Krishna becomes a kind of chorus, his single voice expressing numerous viewpoints which may or may not ultimately fit together to offer a single unified basis for Arjuna's action. Krishna begins with the most obvious tactic. He tells Arjuna to stop being a wimp, or actually to stop acting like a eunuch. If he refuses to fight, he will earn only shame. This is a direct appeal to Arjuna's sense of kshatriya dharma, his code of honor as a warrior. As such, it can hardly suffice, since it does nothing to answer his concerns about kula dharma, the responsibilities he bears towards his kinsmen. So, in this opening speech, Krishna also appeals to traditional ideas about reincarnation. The relatives that Arjuna may kill, and Arjuna himself, should he be slain, will all be reborn. Discarding our bodies in this way is no more dramatic than changing our clothes. The true self, by contrast, is invulnerable. Swords do not cut him, fire does not burn him, water does not wet him, wind does not parch him. Having lowered the stakes in this way, Krishna adds that the consequences of fighting should in any case be irrelevant to a true kshatriya, who should fight bravely regardless of the outcome. Here he plants the seeds of a deeper thought, which will blossom fully over the rest of the Gita. No one, whether warrior or peasant, should act with an eye to the fruits of their action. We already touched on this idea of unattached action in episode 6 when we were talking about karma, but it's worth a closer look, because as Arjuna himself points out, it isn't clear why there is any point in acting at all without striving to achieve some purpose. If the fruits of action are nothing to me, why not disengage entirely and become a renouncer, as Arjuna has already threatened to do? This solution was adopted in spectacular style by ascetics like Goshala and his Ajivaka movement, and by the early Jainas. But here in the Gita, Krishna gives it short shrift, stating that complete inaction is simply an impossibility. No one lives even a moment without doing some act, for the forces of nature cause everyone to act, he says. And later on, no one who has a body can renounce all acts completely. He is the true renouncer who renounces the fruits of his acts. 
To this idea that nature forces us to engage in at least some actions, Krishna adds that inaction too can have fruits. Here we might think of our phrase, sins of omission. If you see that a child is about to be hit by a truck and do nothing but watch as the tragedy unfolds, it will be no good telling the child's parents that her death wasn't your fault because you're in the action-renouncing business. While these passages seem quite dismissive of inaction, others concede that a life of deliberate inaction is at least a stage upon the right path. It is just a less advanced stage than the life of unattached action. At one point, Krishna distinguishes the more simple-minded strategy, which he calls mere relinquishment, from the genuine renunciation that consists in acting without regard to results. Here, the Gita offers a real innovation, even if it is one that can also be found in other, presumably contemporary, texts, like certain Upanishads. And like the Upanishads, it devises memorable and striking metaphors for its teachings, as when it describes the true renouncer as being like a tortoise. As the tortoise draws in its limbs, so the renouncer withdraws even from his senses and focuses on his interior insight. But if you were Arjuna, you might still feel unsatisfied. He's been told that he should not act with a view to the fruits of action, but he hasn't been told what he should look to when he's acting, if anything. Towards what should interior insight be directed? Krishna's answer is simple, think of me. I am the origin of this entire universe and its dissolution, he proclaims. All this is strung on me as strands of pearls are strung on a string. Here we have the core teaching of the Gita, or at least the core teaching of some of its authors. It justifies action in terms of a devotional theism, which does not outright abandon a plurality of gods, but insists that one highest god is the true object of all proper worship. Again, the Gita's concerns here are close to those of some of the later Upanishads, such as the Shvetajvatara Upanishad, which likewise makes a single god the cause of all things. Also characteristically Upanishadic is the Gita's interest in sacrifice, which it frequently mentions and approves, saying things like, the world is not of him who fails to sacrifice. And you can see why the authors might have been nervous. The Brahmins of Vedic culture offered more fruits than a greengrocer, promising that correctly performed sacrifices would bring wealth, a large family, cattle, and a propitious rebirth. Like the Buddhists and other dissident groups, the Gita distances itself from this cash-cow view of ritual, but it encourages us to keep sacrificing anyway. Ritual sacrifice even becomes the paradigmatic approved action, since it is one action that we must surely undertake with our minds set upon God. Krishna's exhortation to Arjuna, then, is not just to fight, but to wage war as a kind of sacrifice, that is, as an action that expresses nothing but devotion to him. Perhaps it is this idea of devotion that has made the text so meaningful to so many readers down the centuries. You don't have to be a mighty warrior to devote your life to God, as the Gita explicitly recognizes. The stratifications of Vedic culture are upended, as Krishna promises that even women and the low-born shudras can be liberated through sincere devotion to him. The point here is not just that we should direct our thoughts to Krishna as we act, but that we should take him as our model when we act. He created the world and continues to support it and hold it together. In the same way, we should act in such a way as to maintain cosmic harmony, or as the Gita says, 
keep the wheel rolling. It is this, rather than any fruits that may accrue to us, thanks to our action, that provides the motive for the true renouncer. Of course, you couldn't blame Arjuna for being puzzled by this. How is his going to war going to help hold the world together? Here, the narrative context of the whole epic merges with the philosophical thrust of the Gita. Arjuna is simply supposed to fight. This is what he is there to do, and the narrative can only resume once he makes up his mind to do so. The war, however destructive it may turn out to be, and, spoiler alert, it's going to be very destructive indeed, is destined to take place, and Arjuna is fated to take his place in it. In this respect, the Gita fits well into the rest of the Mahabharata, which often suggests that the events it narrates were foreordained. The theistic setting of the Gita adds a further dimension to this fatalist outlook, though. Part of Krishna's divine role is to ensure that things unfold as they should. From his lofty vantage point, the future events in the narrative are already present. He knows that they will, and indeed must, occur. This is perhaps the meaning of Krishna saying that he is time, grown old to destroy the world, which is an alternative translation of the passage Oppenheimer quoted when he was musing on the atomic bomb. One might go so far as to say that as Krishna speaks to Arjuna, he is not so much trying to persuade him to fight as informing him that he is in fact going to fight, so he may as well get on with it. Krishna puts it like this, Fettered by your own task which springs from your nature, you will inevitably do what you in your folly do not want to do. The religious teachings of the Gita, its emphasis on a divine plan and on such issues as sacrifice, may make it seem like an Upanishad inserted into the epic of the Mahabharata. But scholars have detected another strand on which its pearls of wisdom are strung, Samkhya philosophy. There's no general agreement about when exactly the Gita was written, with educated guesses having it written in stages anywhere between the 4th century BC and the 4th century AD. But it must predate the composition of the central text of Samkhya thought, which is Ishvara Krishna's Samkhya Karika, and that was written sometime before the 6th century when it was translated into Chinese. We'll be returning to Ishvara Krishna's ideas in a future episode. For now, we just want to mention some of the more striking anticipations of those ideas in the Gita. The most obvious of these is a fundamental contrast between two principles, Prakriti and Purusha, which we might roughly translate as nature and observer mind. We can restate the doctrine of non-attached action in these terms. Like a tortoise pulling in its limbs, the renouncer withdraws from Prakriti, or nature, and focuses on his true self, which is his observer mind, his purusha. The Gita also contains more general descriptions of the way that the two principles interrelate. It says, Prakriti and purusha are both beginningless. Prakriti is stated to be a cause, inasmuch as it is the agency in the production of products, while purusha is stated to be a cause in that he experiences happiness and unhappiness. The purusha is the true, purely observing self, and remains unchanging despite its connection with body, and through body, with the whole realm of nature and the natural aspects of the mental. So, here we might see the Gita as responding to Buddhism by reasserting the idea of an enduring self, some notion of which we already find in earlier Upanishads. Yet, like all-seeing Krishna, the Gita looks forward and not just backward. 
the future Samkhya philosophical movement is going to be intertwined with the tradition called yoga, and that intertwining is already found here in the Gita, and in fact also in other parts of the Mahabharata. The Gita frequently talks about yoga as a path towards enlightenment, which suggests that the would-be sage needs to undergo training and spiritual discipline rather than just learning about the contrast between nature and the self. Yoga thus becomes another word for the path of unattached action, and the practitioner of yoga, the yogin, is synonymous with the true renouncer that Krishna is describing, better than those who merely embrace asceticism and refuse to engage in action. Through the insight of Samkhya, Arjuna can learn things about his Purusha or Brahman, a true self who transcends nature. Through the practice of yoga, he can learn to see the world solely from the vantage point of this true self. Since actions and their consequences unfold in the world, in the realm of nature or Prakriti, they cannot touch him. Before leaving the Gita, we should notice one final implication of the text, one which would not have been lost on its original readers. We've said that Krishna's song is not just for mighty warriors like Arjuna. It is a message we can all take to heart. But that doesn't change the fact that Arjuna is indeed a mighty warrior, a Kshatriya prince. The Gita has a special message for such elite readers, and Krishna makes sure they don't miss it by saying that the teaching he reveals is a Raja Vidya, meaning royal wisdom or knowledge of kings. The king is in a uniquely appropriate position to do as we are being taught by imitating the divine king through his actions. Arjuna emerges from this part of the epic as an ideal ruler who does as he should because he ought to, and out of devotion to the highest lord rather than in pursuit of his own advantage. One can easily imagine the real-life King Ashoka nodding with approval. Just to hammer the point home, the Mahabharata offers us a negative example too, the Kaurava leader Duryodhana. For all his duplicity and wickedness towards the Pandavas, his most heinous sin is that he puts himself and his own interests above all else, rather than submitting to the divine rule of Krishna. We've said that few people face the sorts of situation confronting Arjuna, and for that matter, Duryodhana. But in a broader sense, we all do, whether we are princes or paupers. Warfare is a common human experience, and even more common is the opportunity to do violence to other humans and to animals. Violence is an abiding theme of the Mahabharata, which depicts not only Arjuna's hesitation on the eve of a great battle, but the horrendous devastation wrought by that battle. It may seem strange that Krishna should urge Arjuna on towards this end, but just consider that he also endorses the practice of animal sacrifice. Apparently, he thinks that some blood must be spilled if the wheel of the world is to keep turning as it ought to. Yet, other movements and texts of ancient India were adamantly opposed to such sacrifice. Some, notably the Jainas, sought to avoid doing any violence at all, intentional or unintentional. This commitment to an ideal of non-violence is a legacy that has come down from antiquity to modern times, not only in India with Gandhi's tactics, but across the world. Many non-Indian vegetarians take inspiration, to say nothing of recipes, from Indian culture. So warm up a nice bowl of lentils and join us next time as we give peace a chance, here on The History of Philosophy in India. <laughs>